Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today with two very special guests, longtime friends and collaborators, Neil Hanch and Liz Keane of Silicon Foundry. Liz, Neil, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. All right, so Neil, uh, why don't you give a brief intro as to what is Silicon Foundry? What is the mission of Silicon Foundry? Obviously, you connect brands to startups, but uh, you know, Fortune 500 to startups and Silicon Valley, but go a little bit deeper. And I'm, one way of phrase that question is, you could be working on a lot of different things. You, you took over as CEO of Silicon Foundry, what year? 20- uh, 2016. 2016. What opportunity did you see and, and uh, did you set out to try to solve uh, when you know there are a lot of things you could be working on? Yeah. Why is this so interesting? So, you know, I joined in 2016. Um, Foundry had already been around for, what, nearly three years. And um, it, I guess answering this question requires me to give a bit of my background. Yeah, please. So started life in investment banking in the 90s. Went to a late stage venture fund, worked at a startup, worked in corp dev at, a, at Macromedia, a large corporate, and partnered at a venture fund for a number of years. And what all that means is basically at the intersection between VCs and startups and corporates. And so when, um, when I initially spoke, spoke to the Foundry team um, and heard what the mission is of the company, which fundamentally was to build bridges right, between some of the world's leading corporations and the startup ecosystem, uh, certainly, that means founders, CEOs of emerging companies, but also the VCs that back them, yeah. and lots of the other points of presence. I knew inherently, having been in multiple of those points of presence, that there was a need for someone to be in the middle, someone to help the big companies navigate all this noise that is out there, um, but also for the emerging companies who want to connect the right person at the right time at the right level of these yeah. big companies. So it was almost as though there was this need to have a sort of an elegant matchmaker, connect right. the dots in the right way. Um, and um, so it, it spoke to me yeah. then, um, and I think nothing. We've seen nothing more over the last three years, yeah. in particular, of just more engagement. Totally. From both directions. Yeah, and why don't you trace a little bit of a evolution or history of how um, these corporations have interfaced with Silicon Valley startups? Um, over time. So, I mean, I think that's been the most interesting, so I'm dating myself a little bit, right? But, you know, you've had uh, the tech, you know, large tech uh, incumbents, obviously engaging emerging companies, the usual suspects, right? Intel, Qualcomm, uh, Cisco, and then, you know, uh, the, the um, telcos, super active. I mean, just think about the guys who've been around for the longest, working with startups, investing in them, you know, super active acquisition programs. Um, and um, and then really in the last 10 years, first was the rise of corporate venture, right? And now the stats, I mean, they're shocking even for me and, and Liz and myself, we live this all day long. The fact that they're in 40% of all deals. Wow. Um, the um, In some cases, the, the craziness that there's the Sesame Street, you know, corporate venture arms. Yeah. So it might have gone a little bit overboard. <laughs> but um, and corporate venture is the most obvious tool, probably most yeah. of your listeners, right? We see it. Yeah. Right, and it's uh, firms that didn't exist five years ago, like JetBlue Ventures, yeah. now have a dozen people and you know a couple dozen portfolio companies and super active. So, the, I think the most uh, obvious way is through corporate venture activity. But yeah. we look at that as that's just one tool, right? right? Um, I think you've seen um, certainly over the years, you know, in the B two B side of things, so enterprises, yeah. right? And this is really, I mean, you look at the venture business; it really started with two or three categories, right? Semiconductors enterprise software and, and biotech, right? Yeah. Areas where you needed to raise capital and build product before you could actually ship and start generating revenues. 
So corporates over the last 20 years, corporate venturing at all time highs, the accelerator yeah. programs, uh, which has been uh, sort of a, an interesting thing to watch evolve, yeah. right? Because uh, we see a lot of corporates, maybe taking your question and you know expanding it, we see a lot of corporates, what's the classic playbook, right? So they can come to the valley. Of course, when we use the term Silicon Valley, yeah. we really mean it more as a concept yeah, than well. zip codes. and, and um, But they come, they move, you know, they kind of raise, uh, plant a flag, raise and say, hey, we're here, we're interested in engaging, and it's you know one person or a small team. Maybe they join an accelerator program just to hit on that, right? And they, they look around and they're in an insure tech accelerator program or auto tech. Um, with other corporates like them, and they get really excited about seeing super early stage startups. Um, and um, you know maybe they bring it in house once yeah. they've 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 done it externally, and now they bring it in house. And then I would say one of the newest, most active areas um, is venture studios, yeah. you know, which is really venture builders, yeah. either engaging external startups uh, or just teams very early on with a problem statement, yeah. or trying to support entrepreneurship, right, right? and all this talent. That's all, you know, the word venture or accelerator and all those. Then you have, of course, corp dev and biz dev teams, yeah. right? Who is probably, if it's not a, you know, business decision makers for customer relationships, corp dev and biz dev are the ones that probably most yeah. startups are interacting with because these are the teams who can do partnerships, right. do strategic investments off the balance sheet if there's not a dedicated venture arm, uh, or be the ones that they're trying to get liquidity someday totally. too. Um, I think the other, on a real macro level, you know, the industries that we see corporates coming from looking to engage the startup ecosystem, it is all over the map geographically, yeah. right? But also, you know, it's gold mining and, and beauty and uh, defense yeah. even. I mean, we all know InQtel has been around for a long time, but now you've got, you know, every arm, uh, every, every um element of the armed services, you know, launching their incubator programs or whatnot. So I guess it's just the sheer amount of volume, volume of activity, the ways they're engaging, um, and also just the breadth of these corporates. Right. Um, and it never surprises us each week, you know, maybe a tire company yeah. um, or a Korean beauty company um, or, you know, Latin American utility. Right. And they're all trying to figure out, right? Uh, and I think that's probably indicative as well of, there's no industry left untouched yeah. now. Obviously, media, certain saw it first, and, yeah. and retail yeah. and consumer products. But now it's like every industry is trying to figure totally. out. Software is eating the world. Yeah. So let's, let's go one by one. Let's talk about venture first. Um, I mean, a big question people have when evaluating CBC is, is it returns-based? Is it strategic? What are the tensions there? Are you having outside LPs? Is it all you know from, from the corporation? Um, Different at different. How do you, how have you thought about it? I think that, and having been an institutional VC and bringing in corporate money, um, it wasn't too long ago that usually, other than a few select corporate venture uh, programs, you know, it was the dumb money yeah. paying you know higher prices, and um, you know the promise of strategic value was fulfilled some percentage of the time. Um, I think what what we've seen now, right, is it's professionalized more so than ever before. Actually, a lot of institutional VC expats, you know, landing and, and running corporate venture programs as opposed to historically may have been internal transfers making their first investments. Um, I think the um, also as part of that professionalization is seeing corporate venture arms that have dedicated BD people. It's like their entire job is to make sure post-investment that all of the, the strategic promise internally that um, is potential gets followed up on. 
Um, and um, I think you also had, you know, Intel, you know, back in the day used to say we won't lead any deals. And then, then it was, uh, you know, the, the tables turned and it was we only lead deals. Or we look to lead deals. Um, I think the check sizes also went from the big late stage yeah. ones to, hey, we're willing to do seed deals as well. Um, and so I think a lot of the traditional, you know, unspoken, if not spoken in some cases, kind of rules or stereotypes of corporate venture, a lot of that has, um, has changed yeah. dramatically. Liz, I'm curious for your thoughts on, on accelerators. How have you seen sort of accelerators evolve or, or what sort of opportunities or challenges have, have they presented as they've been in market? Yeah, um, I, I think a lot of corporates went into accelerators um, probably for marketing and for optics. I think there was there's a lot of inherent visibility into the early stage landscape that comes from accelerators, but I think there was also a realization on the back end, a couple of things. One, sort of the consortium approach to accelerators is tricky because uh, you're all getting sort of the same visibility to the same cohort of companies. I also think there was a realization that these companies are super early, right? And so they're not going to be at a scale where they can actually commercialize or support a, a partnership with a, a corporate for years and years and years. So I think that, you know, it, there's there's some huge upside to doing an accelerator, again, just from a visibility perspective. Um, but I, I think there's some real challenges to the model when it comes to actually making actionable totally. opportunities. Yeah. And when we talk about optics, optics for who? For recruiting, for investors, for brand in the market, or... I think it's for corporates just wanting to say they're innovative, right? That they're they're making moves, that they're in the mix, that they're just getting visibility in the valley, um, which is you know a lot of what we see in our business as well. I think there's there's other ways to do it than just parachuting in and and doing any program. Um, there's probably more thoughtful ways to do it. Yeah, and so what's the innovation behind Venture Studios um, at, a, at a high level? Because that's even earlier, right? You're, you're creating something from scratch. Why why that? Yeah, I think it's the, um, and obviously there's so many sub-definitions with accelerators as well. I think with Venture Studios, you know, at the baseline level, it's here's a problem statement, here's an opportunity. Um, We are going to have a direct hand in actually creating the company that brings that product or solution or service to market for it. Um, and so it's it's less. Here's our problem market, uh, and mostly early stage companies historically come to us, right? Uh, or the hackathon. Hey, we've got some issues, and we'd love to you know to crowdsource uh, potential ideas and solutions for the corporates. You know, in this case, it's much more of um, you know this could live um, as a new line of business for the corporate, but actually going into it, it's here's the opportunity. Um, let's build this. Let's build it internally and externally. And there's an opportunity to actually spin it out uh, on the back end as well. And we'll be the first customer. We'll be a big customer of it. Um, I can give you one, one example. Um, you know, a large um, uh, trusted uh, consulting business, right? And they realized, you know, here's the assets that we have. Uh, what else can we do with these assets? And um, they said, well, look, we, this idea that we have of what we can do with the assets of our business, it doesn't naturally live in any one business unit. Right. And so let's go ahead and create a dedicated unit. And they have lots of different names usually. Uh, but ultimately, we will build it. We will be the big first customer and then we'll take it to all of our customers. Right. And so they went from you know, zero to 50 to 100 million, you know, just and, and the first 50 was probably just them. Um, and so um, I think with the, the venture builder model and obviously the idea labs have been around for a long time. 
um, the BetaWorks and Science down in LA. These are these are you know all of those you could put in the venture studio, venture builder bucket. I think the key now is seeing the um, corporates not just being LPs in those activities or being you know participants when the companies come out of the venture studio programs and then they become the first customers, but they're actually in there. They're in there with skin in the game. Um, and um, so part of what we do when we're having these kind of conversations, we've probably had. 25% of our member base in the past year come to us, many of whom have been part of accelerators, many of whom have corporate venture arms, and essentially saying, we're thinking about doing a venture studio, venture builder program. Yeah. Um, here's what we're trying to accomplish. You know, and then the next series of questions is, okay, great. Uh, you know, what's the definition of success? What are the KPIs? Yeah. How do you envision attracting external entrepreneurs to the program? Or how do you envision bringing you know, these entrepreneurs yeah. to it? Uh, what's the end game? Anyways, there's so many questions to follow, just as there are variations in what that term means. But I think we think now more so than ever before, it's also an indication that this is now a core part of R&D. Totally. We always knew acquisitions were, yeah. but this is like, this is how we're going to, at least in some way, shape or form, dream up our next product lines. And um, I think one of the other reasons they exist is, is something that um, is very intuitive but he's practically speaking, see it all the time, which is it can be very hard to spin up, uh, you know, a, a new uh, line of business inside of these behemoth companies. Yeah. And so it's almost a recognition of this thing has the best chance of getting up on its first two legs, getting its first breath of oxygen. If it's sort of, you know, cordoned off, yeah. resourced, given the senior, you know, um, uh, the senior amount of support. But not crushed under the weight of an existing business unit, you know, existing PL considerations, existing, yeah. you know, I think we know the NIH not invented here, you know, syndrome. And, um, or, you know, someone used to use the, the metaphor, you know, inside many of these companies, there can be that, you know, that, that twin who wants to snuff it out in the middle of the night. Um, and so, you know, for us, you know, we see with the venture studios, it's also, this is part of the sort of progression of the venture model. Yeah. Right. I mean, and, um, and it's also a, a really deep way for yeah. institutional VCs and corporates to work together in some cases, you know, sure. pre-company. Yeah. I think the other thing too, that in terms of the evolution of, uh, of, corporate venture in general, we're on the front end of, I think, what will be a new wave in terms of just structural differences in the way people are thinking about things. So I think Sidewalk Infrastructure Partners, which is Alphabet's new, effectively, development company. So they're only doing infrastructure investments. And they're really, so it's kind of a, it's kind of a barbell strategy. They, are, they have an early stage vehicle where they'll invest in enabling technologies, and then they have um, a growth vehicle, for lack of a better word, with a single LP, that's the Ontario Teachers Pension Fund, and they will participate in infrastructure projects that start at sort of a floor of $100 million. So you're just going to start to see, I think, some, some structural differences in the way. People are going to start to get a little bit creative, I think, with totally. the way they structure these programs. Yeah. Let's, uh, let's go to biz dev and, and corp dev. You know, there's this adage, I think, Paul Graham or some VC tells founders, don't talk to biz dev or corp dev people. It's too early. They're just going to waste your time. You're trying not to die. Um, is that inaccurate? <laughs> or when is the right time to be talking to biz dev, corp dev people if, if there's parts of it that are accurate? Yeah. No, I, I, think it's, I think it really highlights stage, right? And so you, kind of, you want that early market feedback, but that's probably not the biz dev, corp dev people. You know, if, if we really take biz dev... You know, we work with this wide swath of global corporates, and um, when they tell us they want to see really early stage stuff, you know, I, I think 
Uh, sometimes we, with a smile, say, no, you don't. What are you going to do with that company, right? You're, you're a massive Middle Eastern shopper mall operator. You're trying to find startups with products that if you agree uh, are really compelling, they will, you know, they have the resources. They have, um, uh, they, they can actually be a partner, right? They can come to the region. They can implement to 1,900 stores or whatnot. Yeah. So I guess I think that statement is right. Uh, depending on the, the outcome, and if the outcome with BD is partnerships, yep. right, then that's you're more likely to be a mid-stage company, right? Yep. You have product to market, um, you know, you have the ability to scale, or at least yep. you're starting to scale. And corp dev, if we use that term in the more most traditional sense, that's usually M and A, yeah. right? It can be strategic investments, and I would also agree, yeah, that will tend to be more mid-stage. Um, and so I think. You know, probably the, the other issue is really bringing up, which is the corporate tourism, yeah. right? And, and we know, even though we may work fundamentally, Liz and I, day in, day out for yeah. in, our, in our parlance, the supply side, or excuse me, the demand side, which is the corporates, we know entrepreneurs hate nothing more than coming away from an hour-long meeting, any hour-long meeting, feeling like all I did was just educate that person, totally. like nothing's going to come out of this, or they love it, and then the opportunity is 24 months from now, yeah. because to your point, right, you're trying to find your first customers yeah. if you're, you know, seed or series a so i think um i think it's it's all about where you're at in the journey as a startup um, and recognizing you know what's the role of that bd person you know we work with one major european telco their job is to find the right startups here who have solutions they can bring back to their you know 150 plus million consumers in europe right Um, that's going to be a mid-stage company the only perhaps you know exception to that is you in many cases particularly with corporate dev you may want to start the relationship early much like with a VC, yeah. right? Where you say, "Look, here's here's what I'm building. Here's what I'm going to do." Yeah. You know, you may not be the right you know backer for my my round coming up next month, yeah. but we're going to get to know one each other. You know, totally. one another. Um, but you know, then it's just the ROI and time and energy. Totally. But do you yeah. think the do you think corp dev by the traditional definition has also changed? Because what I feel like. You know, for example, we work with a big U.S. airline, and, and there's so many different groups now within a corporate that have access to balance sheet capital. So, you know, this particular airline was doing a $200,000 check into a super early stage, like a, not even a Series A company, and then they were also participating in a $200 million round. So I think there's, it, it just, I don't know, has, it, has the aperture around corp dev changed, I guess? It is probably because, you know, it's the earlier stage companies that they didn't have to care about before now are not just nipping at their heels, you know, but probably the, the board starts asking about and may have impact on their business, you know, sooner than ever before. But if you do put your, yourselves in the mindset of a, a corp dev explicitly person, right, they want to do things that move the needle, right? That billion dollar deal versus that $10 million talent acquisition, in some cases, the same amount of work for them. Um, and uh, so I guess like anything, if you're if you're that entrepreneur meeting with that corporate, you yeah. know, it's really like, what's what's the goal of that meeting? What's that person's, what's, the, what's their job? What's their responsibility? Yeah. Like how, what's their incentives? Yeah. And is now the right time to meet with them? Um, and I mean, that's a big, as, as we know, that's a big part of what we do is filtering out and be yeah. like, this is the person you should be talking to. This is their mandate. Totally. You know, knowing what they're interested in, you're the right fit. Um, will something come out of it? Can't promise, but you're talking to the right people. Right? And then I'd say that's Neil's superpower as well, is he's quite masterful at the translation piece, because I think corporates need startups and startups need yeah. corporates, but they fundamentally speak different languages. So yeah. I think we find ourselves consistently in the position of helping just translate. Totally. And it, it, let's unpack that for go deeper there for a second. Is there is there any common mistakes that you think startups make when dealing with corporates or, or common mistakes that corporates make when, when dealing with startups that 
So I think there's a number of things, right? One is just, you know, uh, in no particular order, there's that startup. That meeting went really well, right? And and so did the corporate person. They go, this is going to go so fast, probably like 18, 24 months, right? So just calibrating on, um, yeah, on expectations. Uh, I think to give corporates more credit than ever before, you know, many we're talking to right now, you know, who we expect to work with in the months to come, it's like they're laser focused on we're trying to drive to initial pilots. And here's the definition of the pilot. And if these KPIs are hit, we'll move forward. So I think there's on the translation side, they're already doing more translation uh, than ever before. Um, and um, I think there's also uh, things um, like procurement. So it may not be in translation, but we were, you know, we're, um, I think the, the corporates who uh, have now been trying to really get integrated in the Valley, um, they realize like, hey, we can't do a nine-month procurement process. We need to have a fast track for startups. And so we were talking to the, this tire company, and they were like shaking their head. They're like, one of the first things we learned yeah. was we have to change that. Otherwise, we're banging our head against the wall. Um, yeah. And so I think um, then there is true translation, you know, with Going back to, we're seeing Japanese and Korean and Middle Eastern, more and more corporates from all over the world trying to work with startups. And yeah. it's just the literal cultural translation, yeah. too. I think what's interesting, too, is you're starting to see a lot of corporates hire integration people. So I think there's a lot of, there's this recognition that you can acquire a company, but that company dies a slow death before it even has a shot. But right. going through, you know, the archaic systems and processes related to the actual acquisition. So you're starting to see, they're almost like, like culture protectors, yeah. if you will, that work with the startup to make sure that you know half the reason this corporate wants that startup is because of the culture and the scrappiness yeah. and, and the agility around development and things like that. And if they inhibit all of that from happening totally. by means of acquisition, then it's it's DOA. So you're yeah. seeing you're seeing dedicated roles in the corporate now to help sort of safeguard against that. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, um, Keith Roy, we mentioned, likes to tell the story of how when eBay bought PayPal was sort of the death of like they didn't have a successful integration like the styles were just way too different and so I guess what are you seeing what's what is the opposite of that look like like when, when people do a great integration I mean I'll, I'll give one personal example so I mentioned I worked at Macromedia which uh, hopefully many on the podcast recognize that name when flash used to be a thing used to be a 98% global penetration um, and we were bought by Adobe right which is you know obviously PDF and Photoshop or whatnot and I think you know, there's, there's endless business school case studies of mergers destroying value, not adding. And that was one that worked really well. Um, you had very different cultures. But many things they did was it was a perfect product uh, portfolio yeah. uh, mix, which obviously is, is one thing that um, which is just very tangible. Uh, but more importantly, one of the things they did was they took a lot of the leadership from the acquired company, yeah. and they actually took senior roles at the new one. So it's, it's back to people, how you integrate it. Um, says a lot, uh, and it kind of lines up for the success for M&A. Um, I think right now also, particularly when you have companies coming from very traditional industries doing acquisitions, I know with many of our members, we, we kind of end up being a thought partner with them. Yeah. Um, and they're trying to figure out, do we really tightly integrate it? Do we let it stay off in its own island so we don't ruin it? Do we find a, fi- a, a balance in between? And I think it really goes back to the culture of the company. Uh, finding the easy wins, like we can integrate certain parts of supplier thing because you know we'll pick up 50 margin points. It'd be yeah. silly for us not to integrate that, but let's not touch the creative flow. Let's not touch the product roadmap planning port. But you know, I think um, you know doing it and um, just hoping it works out versus really being really methodical about how are we going to handle you know the six different parts post acquisition 
Um, and, and then being honest with yourselves and the companies have been highly acquisitive, you know, for years, like they've got it down, totally. right? And they figured out what works yeah. and doesn't. So because I'm lucky enough to, to work closely with you guys, um, I know that your you know, members are some of the leading uh, companies and organizations or most innovative companies and organizations across, across industries from, you know, you mentioned, you mentioned airline, you mentioned Middle Eastern shopping mall, banks, uh, uh, retail, beauty, uh, you know, state governments, you, you name it. And so I'm curious from your lens, what separates the, the organizations that do a great job of corporate innovation versus the ones that just do a good job? I mean, a handful of macro points. I think the first is it has to be top down and uh, top down and not bottoms up, but also mid-level management, yeah. right? Because top down really, it's almost like corp dev at the M&A. Yeah. You have an aggressive corp dev team when you have a CEO and a board. Yeah. It's like, this is an important part of our strategy. Yeah. You can say all the platitudes you want. But if that's not evoked from the top down, and then I say not the bottoms up, because usually the bottoms all for it as well. A lot of times the middle management is where it it gets killed. Um, The compensation structure, right? So there's a big part of like, you know, there's fiefdoms and, you know, the safe bet is not to take the risk. I know a lot of this is is very generic, but I mean, we see it a ton. Um, I think on the innovation side, it is also we're back to the acquisitions where you take that new blood, if you will, yeah. and you inject it strategically across the organization. Um, and you know this is not uh, this is not advice, but it's also reality. I mean, the industries that are seeing a ton of pressure, yeah. right? It's the, kind of the inverse of FOMO. They're not missing out; they're feeling it day in day out. So there was there was an example of uh, talking to our friends here at Westfield at one yeah. point where they were building something and they wanted to see if all their major retail tenants uh, would participate in it. Yeah. And, you know, seven years ago, they wouldn't. Um, but now it's it's that collective, you know, we need to drive more foot traffic. Yeah. So you know, folks who used to be competitors and, and could be slow on innovation, just the sheer pressure forces, because yeah. they're trying stuff they never would have tried before. Um, they're partnering in ways they never would have expected to before. Um, so, you know, maybe that's more of a, a macro. What helps, you know, corporates be really successful at innovation? Certainly outside forces as well. Um, and... Um, structuring incentives and the way the leadership acts. Yeah. People have a, a really narrow definition of, of corporations. And I think one of the more interesting things that we've discovered in the past, I guess, couple of years that we've been working with the state of Michigan specifically is they've nailed it because they know that they have something that everyone needs. And that is particularly in this, this environment when a lot of startups are trying to, you know, operate in regulated industries, they need right-of-ways. They need to be able, they need someone that can allow them from a policy perspective to get some of this technology in the real world. And so I think states have a really interesting opportunity to be able to unlock access that that no one else can give and non-dilutive capital. So I think actually states are in a really interesting position. And when you start to think about the economic development corporations for all of these states, it's a whole nother strata of corporates that people don't typically think about, but I actually think they're in one of the more advantaged positions. What do economic development corporations do exactly? There's the historical economic development organizations. Their primary focus has been attracting business. So a lot of big game hunting. How do we get you know HQ2 for big company X or HQ2 for high growth startup X? And so that's been the, the primary function. I think now 
again, the, the aperture is widening and you're starting to see a lot more um, programmatic ways to attract talent. So I think as, you know, there's this big wave of, of talent sort of bleeding out from the coast, it's, they're getting priced out, people are starting to build in, in different markets, there's, yeah. a, there's a big talent grab. And so economic developments have taken the lead on, on creating sort of systems and processes by which you can attract talent. So I think, you know, they're, they're diversifying just in, in their mandate and mission as well. I'm curious, how, how do you guys look at the macro environment here in terms of how the economy affects your business or affects corporate innovation business? Or I mean, one of my views is corporates leaning into startup land. Um, that's never going to turn around. Um, you know, in a downturn, things like corporate venture tend to uh, tighten. Not surprisingly, because the CFO looks over and goes, "What's that strategic investments we're doing?" Yeah. You know, marketing budgets and corporate venturing uh, can be some of the first things to go. But I think we're sort of past the point of no return yeah. on corporates recognizing we have got to capitalize on external innovation. Um, and um, when we think about things like we've sp- spoken a bit during this podcast about M and A and corp dev, you know, there's, there's sort of the age old everything got cheaper. Right, so if you've got a balance sheet, um, now you're in the store and everything's half off. Um, so I think, I, you know, for, for what we do and how we work with corporates, um, I think that the you know a downturn in the economy it may even drive more activity. Um, and uh, and, I, and but it'd also be very regional. I mean, certainly when it came to macro impact things like China, yeah. we were talking to a number of multinationals, you know, based. Uh, uh, based in China, based in Hong Kong, and between the currency controls and then now the trade war, it really, you know, basically the capital got locked uh, in region. So I think we could see that. Um, so I don't know what that'll mean for the Tencents and Alibabas and Baidu. Presumably a lot of their capital is already out of the region. But just a, a general macro downturn, um, I think that a little bit like venture funds, yeah. right? Given the nature of the commitments of funds, they tend to weather at least, you know, a, a couple year downturn. Um, and I think for us, it may just be some of the conversations we have with the corporates, you know, change to, I need to have even nearer term impact, right? right. Rather than, um, you know, we're scouting for five-year trends. It's, you know, what can we capitalize on this year? Which startups can we work with? Can we partner with who will drive revenues, you know, three quarters from now? Um, or who will help our operations and cost savings? Um, so it may tighten timelines and put even more intensity on, on ROI and whatever these activities are. But I don't view it as corporates are going to retreat back to their shell. Um, and so that's, I mean, that's kind of what excites us. Uh, it may even be the case that talent talent uh, starts considering more of, well, maybe I will take that job yeah. with that Fortune 500 rather than that startup. So you could even see, you know, kind of the uh, unintended beneficial consequences, you know, as they're, and by the way, of course, all the corporates are looking for digitally native talent. Which is why I think, again, back to the venture studio that we're, you know, if there is a downturn of, of some scale, venture studio model actually works quite well in that context. You, you talked about some of the perverse incentives between mid-management of not wanting to take risks. How are corporate innovation teams measured? Like, what's how's their success measured? What are the KPIs? So it's really one of our, you know, when Liz and I sit down with the CIO, Chief Innovation Officer, either the first or second question rather than how's your day and do you want a cup of coffee is, what exactly is your mandate? Yeah. What's, your, what's your KPIs? Because, um, you know, and, and a third question is, who do you report into? Because usually those are very telling things. Yeah. And there are going to be all different answers under the sun. Yeah. What are some of the different answers in terms of what, and what do they imply? Yeah. So, you know, one CIO role might be like the visionary Right, who's just there to talk about the, the digital transformation of their sector. The over-the-horizon. The over-the-horizon thinker and talker and peripheral vision, right? And they're basing on the professional speaker circuit. Yeah. Uh, and that's an important role. 
right? In others, the chief innovation officer is or is attached to the hip to the CTO, right? Uh, in others, this chief innovation officer is really the chief digital officer, right? And there is no chief innovation officer title, right? And their job is, if we keep using that term, to digitally transform their business, yeah. right? Um, and so when we sit down with innovation teams, um, it's really like, what are you doing day in, day out? Um, and um, some of these other legs of the stool we've talked about, corporate venture, do they purport under the innovation team, yeah. right? And um, so I think if I go back to entrepreneurs, yeah. they're probably rarely selling to the chief innovation officer or the innovation team, which normally is not a buying budget, right? right. But, um, and when they report directly to the CEO, um, which on the surface can be very powerful, it also, but what are the relationships with the business units, yeah. right? right? Um, and are you viewed as sort of that, that wonderful shiny spoon yeah. in the organization? Because going back to VCs or, or founders, right, and senior management teams is you're trying to get stuff done yeah. with the corporates. Um, and uh, um, so, and I think that's continuing to evolve as well, right? Yeah. And the title chief innovation officer, that doesn't exist. Right. more than five years ago. Yeah. Uh, still doesn't exist in most companies. Totally. And when you say CIO, most people still think chief information officer. Right. I think that goes back to your question earlier, Eric, about what type of architecture at a corporate sets that group up for success. And the, the chief innovation officers that, that work directly with the business units against yeah. a specific pilot statement and have buy-in and budget to actually greenlight pilots are the ones we've seen have a lot of success. Um, just because, you know, half the battle, 90% of the battle really is getting internal buy-in. So if that part of the process is addressed up front, then you, you mitigate a lot of the, the tension. Let's go back to, to CVCs. How do you think about sort of you know, strategic versus financial motivations versus, you know, uh, how do they interface with the VC community, you know, as we understand it today? So, you know, on the question of strategic versus financial, right? And I think they're, um, you know, it, from my perspective, the best is um, a healthy mix of the two. Yeah. And you could say 75% financial, 25% strategic, right? And um, the all strategic can, can lead to some perverse incentives um, where you're doing a deal just because they know they can get it past the BU. Yeah. Um, but is it going to, it also helps indicate who's going to be there, who's the team? Uh, right, and so to attract the the absolute best investor types, usually there's got to be a strong financial component. Um, but again, the reason the entrepreneur is taking the money is because of the strategic component. And I think the best corporate venture arms, guys like Next Forty Seven and Samsung and Comcast and Salesforce and others, they fundamentally come with the you know returns driven um, uh, perspective, but also know here's how it fits and here's how I can add value to the company after the fact. Um, Purely financially driven uh, strategics, uh, excuse me, purely financially driven corporate venture arms, they're very few and far between, right? Those who will also take outside LPs, few and far between. You know, there are guys like uh, Sapphire, right, which is SAP is, is basically a, a lone sole LP. They act very financially driven, but have that strategic sort of, you know, stalwart. Uh, behind them. And this is also where uh, you really scratch your head sometimes and say, you know, why is XYZ investing in this company? Because that doesn't seem, you know, with BP, why won't they be investing in a retail technology company? You know, this is our day and day, uh, which is what makes it so exciting and interesting is, you know, they're investing in things that may be over the horizon or may not realize, hey, they're actually a massive retailer. Yeah. Right. Every gas station is a retail outlet in that context. Um, or, you know, you'll see, um, you know, a chemicals company, um, in, you know, in investing in 
beauty uh, plays, they realize, oh, wait a minute, they're a big supplier in that category. Yeah, I think I think it's a lot about you know, future-proofing, and that's where it gets really interesting. So you take a company like Tyson Foods, right, and they're investing in an alternative protein startup. It feels really counterintuitive because it actually, in theory, undermines their core yeah. business. But it's it's the, the corporates that are thinking about it as a means of diversification where it gets really interesting. Yeah, it's like a hedge. Sometimes. It's a hedge. So there's a, a Fortune 50 financial services company, um, big in annuities and life insurance, and they were super invested in longevity tech. So why? Like, we, we couldn't quite figure it out at the beginning, but guess what? Their whole business fundamentally changes when people suddenly are living longer. So yeah. people that are investing in that type of over-the-horizon technology are our are, are favorites, frankly. And how about how CVCs uh, interface with the VC community? So I think, um, you know, as we were talking about a little bit earlier, CVCs not just taking, you know, um, second chair roles, not just following, but leading rounds, sitting on boards, whereas before it was, we don't want to own a certain percentage and we don't want to sit on the board. Um, I think the other thing we're seeing increasingly, still selectively, is corporates being LPs uh, in venture funds. And not from the, you know, the pension side, which is just pure returns driven, but because they're using it as a strategic tool. Right. They um, they don't have access and coverage in a region. And so they'll invest in a fund in China to get a better finger on the pulse. Um, or, you know, they want to be in one of these other areas um, that they're not in today and not obvious. It's a great way to start a relationship with the GP. Also start to get a better sense of their view on the emerging market, uh, their deal flow, whatnot. So I think for the, you know, the GPs uh, listening here, it's, um, you know, being able to meet with a corporate and know that this would actually be a strategic LP. Um, those opportunities we're seeing more and more now than ever before. Um, and we've got some of our members that are in seven or eight funds, yeah. you know, and it's, um, it, it's very, and they also do direct investing. Yeah. So they may have a 400 million euro fund. They carve out 50 for LP positions, either in sectors or subsectors or geographies where they just don't have the muscle yet. Yeah. Um, and then they can also be a co-investor, totally. right? Which is very common in private equity and venture to think I got a strategic LP who also can be a co-investor down the road and the right opportunities. Totally. It's kind of a, and, and actually they can leverage them for yeah. diligence um, or for BD, post-investment. Yeah. So where is this all going? Let's say we're doing a podcast, you know, five years from now, it's 2024, 2025. What do we expect to have changed in corporate innovation broadly and, and you know, with Silicon Foundry and what you guys are doing? I, mean, I think the question is, if we think about, you know, there's, you know, there's a thousand new start, startups started every day. Like what percentage of those were started fundamentally by corporate platforms, wow. right? And, you know, a little, I mean, a little bit like, you know, in venture, yeah. The idea of VC firms starting companies, it was, no, we, we back entrepreneurs who come to us with an idea, right? Um, and so I think that would be, you know, if I could fast forward ahead, it's yeah. less around how does corporate venturing evolve? It's more around how did new co's get yeah. created? Um, yeah. And, um, and you know, these, these corporates, uh, in some cases, are 150 years old, yeah. household brand names, amazing people, amazing assets. Yeah, brand, We're, data, money. Exactly. I mean, just distribution and domain expertise and whatnot. What do they do with that? Yeah. You know, and the way things have, have changed so dramatically, you know, are changing, you yeah. know, so dramatically. I think that's what would be interesting um, is to see. Um, how the how the corporate impact um, right. on startups how that really plays out. It's interesting. You know, one case study of this is uh, is Detroit and what Dan Gilbert has done. And he started a venture firm, and they were investing in a lot of companies. And there was some exciting stuff, but no unicorns. And then he said, "We're start incubating," and that's where StockX came out of. 
Um, and so you took some of the best people that were at some of the startups and, and some unique insight that they had. And yeah, it's interesting to see more examples of that. Well, it'll be interesting to see too, now that Detroit has actually three unicorns, like the mafias in Silicon Valley were foundational to this whole ecosystem. So when you start to see that kind of breakout, you know, the triads in, in cities like that, how does that, how does that create the basis for that mafia ecosystem? It's going to be interesting to see cities in the next five to 10 years, what happens. I mean, I also, um, you know, think about all the talent out there who, who may not have the idea themselves or may not, you know, be right to start something, you know, uh, but who, boy, when you've got something that's crossed that initial chasm of death, you've got some, the early days of product market fit and the talent who can come in then um, and, and, you know, build the companies, maybe not from the first inning. I think that's also where venture builders um, have sort of unique value. I know we worked with one of them very early on in uh, the firm I was at before. And a big part of it was we can go ahead and spin up the idea. We can A-B test it. Um, and then at the right time, we can cherry pick the right kind of talent, right? And these would be folks who may have been around the block, but realize like I'm ready to parachute in. And right. that's when, you know, it's a little bit like the, it's the inverse of, you know, the very few founders, you know, are managing the company when it's 20,000 employees. And there are a couple of amazing examples of that. And this is the inverse of someone who's not a good, you know, day one leader. Um, but who's ideal to parachute it into an yeah. opportunity and really scale it out. Totally. But totally. I also think, too, to that point, Gen Z, which is you know, very quickly going to be a disproportionate percentage of the working population, they have a very different philosophy. So they're really entrepreneurial, but they also really like the, the safety of a, a construct like a corporate. So I think in that sense, too, venture studios are going to be really interesting to them because it gives them sort of the, the fluid structure and enough agility to feel like they're building something, but with the backdrop of, of something quite secure. Totally. And do, do, for whatever reason, they like more security than millennials do? Yeah, and I, I don't really know why that is. I think they were born into a very different time. Um, so, yeah, I mean, everything that we were, we were deep in Gen Z right now because everyone's starting to wake up to the fact that they're super powerful generation. We were surprised. I was personally surprised. We had an intimate dinner uh, with some uh, Gen Z sort of thought leaders in New York not long ago. And, and you know, and part of the conversation was 2008. Right. So they were sort of these formative years right. when it was a really bad economy. Um, and so whereas we think every one of them is an entrepreneur. Uh, so it's kind of it's really the what's the definition of an entrepreneur? Um, it doesn't need to mean any one thing. For uh, listeners, you know, entrepreneurs, investors, uh, other listeners who are curious to learn more about Silicon Foundry um, and potentially get involved in some capacity, uh, how do you, uh, where would you point them? I think the, uh, you know, maybe the website is always the first place to start, www.sifoundry.com. Um, and really, you'll find very little there. Um, just a few examples of the kind of folks we work with. Um, but, um, you know, and as Liz mentioned, working with largely with Fortune 5000 companies who are there, they're ready in their journey um, to really have a, a, a tight-knit partner in, in helping them sift through the landscape and figure out who they should be working with. But, it, you know, it's really also in the organization who's trying to build bridges, uh, trying to tap that external innovation. So it may be states um, or cities in some cases. We're also seeing uh, family offices, right, as they're historically LPs and funds, but yeah. more and more and more want to do direct deals. Yeah. All right. And they're trying to stay confidential, but they've got certain areas of focus and passion. Yeah. Um, and last, last but not least, you know, private equity firms, totally. which has been an interesting area, right? They're, they're dipping into the, the uh, types of companies that VCs are backing at the later stages, 
Also, their portfolios are historically filled with industrial and manufacturing, consumer and retail, right? The same kind of companies that these Fortune 5000 uh, and these traditional industries are all going through those transformations. Um, the only thing I would add to that is, you know, we try and be a resource for the whole ecosystem. Yeah. So to the extent that there are early stage companies that are looking for, you know, unique access to strategic capital or strategic partnerships or BD with, you know, some of the more interesting corporates in the world, we're also a, a good sort of point of entry for that. 100% vouch that Liz and Neil and, and team are not just excellent partners for, for those big organizations you mentioned, but also uh, merging startups, venture capitalists who, who want to get connected and... Um, yeah, this has been a fantastic episode. Neil, Liz, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks thank so much for having us. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst. 